Graham Fury came out of ACT UP, which was, at, you know, ACT UP stands for the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, and as I suspect you know, ACT UP forms in March of 1987, after a speech that Larry Kramer gave at the Gay and Lesbian Community Center in New York. I didn't move to New York. I grew up in Chicago. I'm the youngest of 11 children, all from the same parents. I'm completely lower middle class. My father was born in 1917, and my mother was born in 1920. I'm now 53. My oldest sibling is 19 years older than me, so there were 11 children born in 19 years. We were Irish Catholic, very impoverished <laughs> family. Um, and so when I moved to New York, I came here in the summer of 1987. I had gotten my MFA degree at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and I came to attend a thing called the Whitney Program, which is the Whitney Museum has an independent study program. In the Whitney Program, there's a woman named Amy Hurd. She had started going to ACT UP meetings, and she was the first person who took me to an ACT UP meeting, which I went to in the summer of 87. At that same time, there was a project being begun, which eventually became called Let the Record Show. It was a window installation in the New Museum of Contemporary Art in New York City, which at that time was on Broadway, just below Houston. And Let the Record Show was a kind of extension of the first projects that ACT UP did, which was an, this idea of bringing into public record public officials and, and holding them to, uh, accountable for the statements they'd made around HIV and AIDS. I suspect you also know that in, by 1987, the President Ronald Reagan had not yet mentioned the word AIDS publicly, which was outrageous given the fact that the number of people who had died at that point was comparable to the Vietnam War. Um, so that was the starting point of Gra Grand Fury, was this larger collective ACT UP. And within that collective ACT UP, there was what we called an affinity group. Affinity groups were smaller collectives within the larger collective, so there were, you know, AIDS and Women, or a group that became the Treatment Action Group that was very instrumental in speeding the release of drugs. This group didn't have a name. We were like the Art Club, I guess. Um, a curator <laughs> named William Olander, Bill Olander, who later died of AIDS, invited, came to the floor of ACT UP and invited ACT UP to um, gave the window of the new museum to ACT UP. So we made that project, Let the Record Show. That shows in the fall of 1987 don't quote me exactly in dates, but it's like October through early December, I'm guessing, is when that exhibition happens. And from that, a number of us decide that we want to form a smaller collective, basically, that's going to use, that's going to use the techniques of art and art making paired with activism to create public messages in the, in the, in the, you know, in the street, on the subways, in the public domain. Initially, we had no money, so we just made stickers and t-shirts and flyers. Um, and that group, the first project we made is a project called um, AIDS, uh, AIDS 1 and 61, which is a project talking about um, babies of color in, in the late, 80, in 87 and 88, there was a statistic saying that 1 in 61 baby, 1 in 61 babies born to parents of color were HIV positive, and this was not being reported at all. And the difference around how HIV was being reported in relationship to race and class was very notable in that period of time. So we decided to form a group called Grand Fury. Grand Fury takes its name. I mean, the sad, really, truth is during the time of the 80s, we always said that we called Grand Fury after the Plymouth automobile that the police, the uh, New York police used as undercover cop cars. The truth of it is, they didn't use them as undercover cop cars. It just sounded good. And <laughs> so they actually, the police did use the, the, the civilian cars of the police was a Plymouth Grand Fury, but it wasn't an undercover police car. So we clung to this because we love the idea of being undercover. We also chose the Grand Fury because it sounded like big anger. 
And it's, I think it speaks a lot of that period of time, which people think of AIDS as a very, which it was, that the late 80s, a very serious crisis time. But much of what we did was involved with humor and being very irreverent and trying to grab an audience by capturing them in an unexpected way. AIDS was, you know, it seemed like a death sentence. It was an incredibly graphic physical way to die. It's a part of AIDS that's now passed. People had lesions and lost, you know, 100 pounds literally in three months of time. So I fled Chicago to, the, to go to the epicenter of the AIDS crisis. I was so scared of AIDS, I decided to go to the epicenter of the AIDS crisis. Makes a lot of sense. Somehow it does make sense, actually, but because I had no community there, I had no context. There was not a strong activist um, movement um, around AIDS at that point at all in, in Chicago. And as a visual artist, I felt very, I knew I wanted to make work uh, about that drew on the experiences of my life, but I also knew that I wanted to make work collectively. I think the most important thing to understand about AIDS activism from that period of time, because we get lots of credit, those of us who participated in it, is half of our motivation at least was self-interest. We were terrified of dying. And there was no way to not die, basically. So you either were going to just passively die, or you were going to do something about it and be angry and protest. So I, being a fighter by nature, I just I wasn't going to just die, basically. I was going to fight. I think that that really is the main motivation, is a kind of, you know, because I teach now at Columbia students who are in their 20s and their 30s, and they say, why is it so much harder to be politically active now? I think there are many answers to that question. Um, but I think that one of them that gets in a statement that gets missed is that you guys don't really have that acute. You do not in relationship to certain issues. Like student debt doesn't make you feel like you're going to die tomorrow. AIDS made me feel like I was going to die tomorrow, basically. So that was the urgent motivator of it. The starting point was almost always coming from the ACT UP floor with Grand Fury work. So it was basically one of the political issues we're protesting in that period of time. So at a certain period of time in 87 and 88, we're protesting the Koch administration's support of tax benefits for real estate developers like Trump compared to the fact that there's no, um, home, there's no home housing provided for people with HIV in the city. And so our marching orders or our, our topics, our themes, would come from what was a hot-button issue and what the collective itself was protesting. What we did, I think, generally is think about how do you make that accessible to an audience that doesn't care at all about AIDS, basically. And usually that was thinking visually and thinking about language. A lot of us had, there are a couple members of Grand Fury who came straight out of advertising. They worked as graphic designers, they, worked, they did work for MTV, et cetera. During the 80s, I was actually working as an editor at MTV, editing like silly top of the hour spots, advertising what MTV did. So in my own artwork, I was trained by a lot of the language-based feminist artists of the 80s. At the Whitney program, I studied with Barbara Kruger. One of my teachers was a critic named Craig Owens. Yvonne Rayner, who's from the generation before that, also taught me. And so there, and, and, or Jenny Holzer, or Sherry Levine. There are all these artists that came out of the 80s who were using language as a kind of tool to critique power. So individualized, very, very influenced by that strategy, and we, and so that, and we all came from different places, different uh, members, of, and some members of Grand Fury had, weren't really, you know, one was a taxi driver, one was a hairdresser, like people who were not trained in art making at all, but had aesthetic point of view and had a very strong opinion and wanted to participate in a collective discussion. So we started having kiss-ins, now we would call them flash mobs, I guess. I don't know. But it's basically, you know, a lot of people went to a location and just did something. So we did one in Sheridan Square where we all kissed. 
and that was a protest about just this topic of AIDS and homophobia. We, in the collective, decide, okay, spring AIDS action is coming up. There are these eight days, there are eight protests. John, you're going to do people with AIDS. Tom, you're going to do AIDS and homophobia. So it literally got, and that person, one person would spearhead the thing. In my case, and there are two people involved in the, um, just to talk about the piece called Read My Lips. I came up with a slogan, and the slogan was basically George Bush, the first, whose campaign slogan was, read my lips, no new taxes. Like, 1988, this is all you heard him say endlessly. And I was like, that's a great slogan, read my lips. So I brought that in, and I was like, what if it's an image of two people of the same sex kissing, basically? And another member of Grand Fury, who later went on to be in treatment in action, and is a quite significant treatment in action figure named Mark Harrington, brought that picture of the two men kissing. And so it would be sometimes a mashup of two people having different ideas and layering them together. We would paste that thing up, and then we would make the text in the bottom of it kind of collectively. Well, I think one of the things that's so different in the culture in that period of time, the obvious thing, the elephant in the room, is the lack of cell phones, the lack of social media, all of it. So in, you know, in the 1980s, I moved here in 87, None of that stuff happens till years later. I literally do not actually even know how to operate a computer. I lie at AIDS films. I'm like, yes, of course you know how to use a computer. I'm like, they're hunched over the manual going, how do you type? What do you do? What's, what does F1 mean? Oh my God, I'm going to die. Um, so that shaped a totally different culture. You know, you would leave your house in the morning, basically, and that would be the last time you'd have a connection to your house. You may or may not have even had a code that allowed you to call your answering machine. So most of the time I would leave Monday morning at 9 o'clock in the morning and I would never check in my answering machine. So the messages I got in that day would come at the end of the day and I would be dealing with them the next day. There was also a very strong street presence of posters and flyers and information. There was a way that we got information instead of going to someone's timeline or you know, reading a Twitter feed. You just went into the street, basically, and bumped up against all these contradictory information and said, oh, a concert I want to go see. Oh, there's an interesting protest. There's a project we did called Jima Souviens, which was a project that we did in Canada in 1991. And we adopted this Quebecois slogan, thinking we were being very clever Americans talking about the Canadian political HIV situ situation. And the Canadians literally just read the piece as a kind of imperialist, colonialist, colonialist comment being made by Americans about Canada. And we suddenly realized, OK, our work is becoming very complicated because you know, as a New Yorker, I could speak about HIV in New York. Or I could, as a gay man, I could speak about HIV in the gay community. But it became much more complicated when you started going to other communities and you were supposed to be representing those communities. And we tried, actually, as a collective, to begin to collaborate with different organizations and realized in the end that probably the strongest thing we could do was to, to, dis, to you know, sort of disappear from the same way that we formed. We all grew up out of something, and then we just kind of like went back down into that thing when the project was over. Um, so yeah, none of the projects I think, I mean, some of the things I think are just weak, is what I would say about some of the Graham Fury work. I do, when I look back at it, I'm amazed how much work we made in a short period of time. I had a full-time job. I worked 40 hours a week for a company called AIDS Films, which was an AIDS education company, film, film company, production company. I was a member of ACT UP. I went to a weekly meeting every single Monday night for ACT UP. I went to a Wednesday night Graham Fury meeting. I went to another affinity group meeting on Thursday nights. I mean, we just like worked constantly around AIDS. And, so, and I think it it's just speaks to the kind of intense urgency of that 
period of time, how quickly the events happened from 87 to 90. I mean, I think that I think our feeling was, unless it was people who had HIV or AIDS themselves representing themselves, we felt like there was a kind of rhetorical system that replicated AIDS in a way like it basically AIDS couldn't mean being sexy or attractive. AIDS automatically meant being having a death sentence. There was a kind of in the language. I mean, even in the language of the time, an AIDS victim which we rejected and was like, no, I'm a person with AIDS. I'm not an AIDS victim, basically. Or even things that seem transparent, like th there was a term then, the general population. The general population is a rhetorical structure to basically say, not you, not us. You're people of color, you're queer or something. You're not part of the general population. So there was a trying to reject or fight with that kind of um, struggle, I think, in some ways, to try to articulate um, kind of identity and relationship to it or, or try to stand up in some way. I would say, despite my relatively jolly demeanor in talking about this, I should be completely clear and say, AIDS completely changed every aspect of my life as a young person. It, how could it not have? It was the biggest tragedy of my life. It was brutal to go through that experience. Um, and I was incredibly lucky. I think I probably wouldn't have survived and couldn't talk about it with this kind of openness and lightheartedness had I not collectively had all of the people I worked with who like we all got on a leaky rowboat together and just were like let's paddle because we don't have anything else to do and I think that's you know a really important thing of what that time says to me and that I know had I not moved even from Chicago to New York I probably would have had a different trajectory because that collective engagement was so incredibly important to me um, and I think again just to repeat that the fear of death the fear of suffering the shock and horror at the sight of my, the people I loved, my friends, my roommates getting sick and dying, all those things raised the stakes enormously and made everything undeniable. Like your sex life changed, who you kissed changed, your everything changed basically. So that level of fear, tension, examining your own body, your own mortality, it's very abnormal in your 20s to think about your mortality constantly, like all I thought about in my 20s was my mortality. It's insane. I think less in my 50s about my mortality than I thought in my 20s. It's totally, I mean, that's how fucked up the balance of it was. Um, so I think those things, you just do nothing, it doesn't ever go away. It's part of my DNA now. It's a huge part of the way I formed as a person, 